Hey everyone, this is uh, Dave Broadback sitting here. It's August of 2019 and I'm getting ready for the term. Uh, you may be here. It's really hot right now in here, in this room, but you may be listening to this when it's very cold. Isn't the internet amazing? Anyway, this is uh, the lecture you're about to hear is from Psych 4006, the history of psychology for the 2019 fall term. Hope you enjoy it. That's mostly that's the, so the critical thinking ones, those yeah. kind of things. So a lot of these names we're going to talk about today, especially, are names that you would have heard of. They're names, frankly, some of them, you know, Plato and Aristotle, you ought to just know because you exist in Western civilization. But, you know, in civilization, just let's just leave it there. Western, Eastern, no matter where, they're important people. Um, some of the, the first couple we'll talk about you may not have run into before. Um, and they're actually, interestingly, going to start a little more modern and then go back in time, uh, like we have a time machine. So, and I said this actually yesterday in, in, in Intro Neuroscience, that ever since people have been thinking, they've been thinking about thinking. I think that's probably a safe statement, because when you're sitting around a fire, and it's, I don't know, 150,000 years ago, and you're sitting around a fire, uh, and there's extra time. You can talk. You can tell. One of the things that the amazing things about people, we discover fire. It keeps the predators away. It allows us to cook our food. It does some great things. But it also gives us this. Gives us downtime. It gives us almost leisure time. It gives us time to communicate with each other about things that are probably outside just. You go here and kill whatever animal that is in there. <laughs> so, I think the notion that people sat around and started thinking, and thinking about non-tangible things, and thinking is non-tangible, you can't touch thinking, right? We know that ancient humans and other, so not just homo sapiens, but other hominids, we know that they thought of an afterlife, because they buried their dead. You don't bury your dead if you, think, if you don't think of an afterlife. Right? Like, why would you carefully lay someone out and put artifacts in a grave if you think, well, we're just doing this to clean up? <laughs> you're, you're doing that because you're probably sending them off somewhere else. So people are thinking about all kinds of new things. People are thinking about their place in the world. Right? The cave paintings in Spain, which are 20 to 40,000 years old, where the artist leaves his handprint. It's a pretty amazing thing. He's marking something for the future. He's thinking about the future. He's thinking about other people. That's cool. That's cool. So I think because of that, we, it's probably safe to say that people have been thinking about thinking for a long time and how thinking works. Now, so we went from 150,000 years ago, let's go to 5,000 years ago, so we're just skipping ahead. Yada, yada, yada. Um, psychology grows out of philosophy. All science grows out of philosophy. Okay? Um, all science does. So, and you have to realize that to be when, when universities get invented, which is, jeez, oh one can argue when they were invented, sometime in between the 800s and the 1200s. Like, Oxford and Cambridge were places of learning in like 800. Were they universities? They were places where scholars hung out and you sent your kid, if you had been money, to go get trained in learning things. 
how you get trained into one of two things. You can become a monk, or you can do philosophy. And eventually, they start teaching courses. When I say teaching courses, people read things, and they still do that at Oxford and Cambridge. The way the education system works there, in fact, is there are not classes like this. You individually meet with a prof. Sounds intense, right? Every course is a reading course. That's why people say, I am reading history. I am reading psychology at Oxford or Cambridge, because you actually just individually meet with people. So they start having people who are reading what is called natural philosophy. Natural philosophy is science. So then you get physics showing up, uh, math and physics, chemistry. Biology doesn't really start until the 1850s. And psychology is probably the last thing to break away from philosophy. So everything comes from philosophy. Or over here you do theology. So you can learn to be a minister, or a priest, or a monk, or you can be a philosopher, which probably doesn't pay that well, but you can become a university professor, sort of, kind of idea. Again, which doesn't pay that well, still. So everything grows out of philosophy. That's why we start with philosophy. Makes sense. Um, so we're getting a few terms out of, out of the way. Uh, I, I, I'm not one much on, we now must define our terms. I hate having discussions with people say, well, first let's define our terms. And I go, yeah, I'll talk to you later. But it's kind of important that we do here, I think. So, first of all, epistemology, which is theory of knowledge. How do we know things? That's what epistemology is interested in. And there's a few different ways, different ways that we can get to the truth. And they have, some have problems, some have fewer problems. So the first way is authority. Expert says something probably true. Not always true, and if, as you probably know, there's a fallacy here. The argument from authority really should carry very little weight, right? That said, if I tell you in stats class, that t equals x bar minus mu over s divided by square root of n, it's probably true. Why would I make something else up? Now, it's always 11. t always equals 11. <laughs> now, if I said it, that's the, and I use the argument from authority, that's wrong. That's the problem with it. But usually, if someone has expertise, we can trust the expertise. Yes? Okay? So that's, that's authority. Empiricism, trust your senses. I like that one. Right? This leads eventually to the idea of experimentation. This is the idea of, I saw it, I experienced it, therefore it is true. Right? So if I see something, is that a blind joke? It's offensive. <laughs> if I see something, if I hear something, whatever, I can trust my senses. Now, we know there are illusions. We know these things don't always, your, your, your senses do kind of, and now as psychologists, we know that there are occasions where your senses aren't exceedingly valid necessarily. What color is the dress? Was that years ago? It's gold, no, it's blue, I forgot what the hell it was. But it's like, yeah, actually your senses were lying to you. And that happens. Rationalism, you figure it out. You reason it out. Deductive reasoning. If X, then Y. Right? So this kind of reasoning is not just trusting your senses, it's trusting logic. That our universe works as follows. Causes come before effects. Therefore, if I figure out, a, a, if I have a cause, and then I look and see an effect, I can say x causes y. Right? That's a pretty reasonable approach, right? And in fact, also, again, still to this day, part of experimentation involves rationalism. Aestheticism, if it's beautiful, it is good. And if it is good, it is true. 
Yeah, you may think at first that's stupid. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Why would truth be beautiful? Look this up. We talk about this in science all the time. We talk about does it explain data well? Does a model do a good job explaining data? Right? We, we say those things. How many times, you may have heard me, if you've, I've taught you a few courses, how many times have you heard me say, oh, those are pretty data? Like, a, it's a beautiful effect. Look at that curve. It goes like this and like that and like that. You know, you think of something like, okay, I'm going to have to just, you have to imagine. Oh, no, I can draw in here. I was afraid I could draw in here. So if you have along this axis um, anxiety level, and on this axis you have performance, right? Let me change color. Goes like that. Yerkes Dotson law, right? You know that. You know that the better you get at something that you weren't perfect at, that you weren't an expert at, the more anxious you are to a point, you do better. Then after a while, it drops off and you do very poorly. Here you're asleep. Here you're having a panic attack. You want something in the middle. Right in the middle. You don't want to be just so down and bored when you walk into a test because you're not going to be motivated, right? You're just going to assume. You're not going to do well. On the other hand, over here, you're so freaked out that you're not going to do well. But in the middle, you want to be, and uh, you know, I know when I used to write exams, I used to kind of pump myself up. I'd, get, I'd listen to the same song all the time, and I'd just, come on, ask me some questions. Put me in, coach. I can do this. And I, I know I see a lot of you getting like that at finals where you're sort of like punchy. That's good. That's what we want to be. That's pretty. So let's think of a, a different, let's pretend, in fact, that if you saw that result or this one, you'd probably say, I think the blue one's better. And that's really just because it's more beautiful, it's more simple, right? I like this one, pragmatism. Does it work? Okay, good, done. It's pragmatic, right? It's just simply saying, yeah, that works. Beginning of the term, I always think I'm forgot to hit the record button. And then skepticism means I don't believe it until I've seen it myself and seen it repeated. And if you look at all these, science actually has all of these things built into it, doesn't it? Right? So if someone, for example, says that they have come up with an experiment that shows that there is ESD, The first thing I do before even reading the article is I take a look and see who is this. And when I see Department of Physics, I go, this guy doesn't know how to design. I, I can guarantee you this guy can't design an experiment on people. Just like I can't design experiments about freaking particles. Just not my I don't want my training. Trust my senses. See it replicated. Does this make any sense at all? The world would not be very beautiful if we could all read each other's thoughts. And it doesn't work. There's an easier explanation. Person cheated. You know. So we do we use all these kinds of ways of getting at the truth in science. Right? But the fact that we have all these things is the result of thousands of years of philosophy. Including the philosophy of science. Questions about that so far? Does it make sense? Yeah? Okay. So here's some models of science. You've probably heard of some of these people. Karl Popper, who's, uh, he was Austrian, uh, said things have to be testable for them to be scientific. Right? So psychoanalysis isn't science because it says, well, it's not testable. And the reason it's not testable is I can give you a very simple example. If I ask you if you want to, if I ask the guys in here, don't answer this question, please. If they want to kill their father and sleep with their mother, if you raise your hand, I call the police. But I also 
say my theory's correct. If you don't raise your hand, I say, ah, you're repressing. <laughs> my theory's correct. <laughs> so the problem here is it's not a scientific theory. I can't test it. It's just like, is the robot, is it really a scientific theory? Because it's a supernatural being. It's outside nature. It doesn't follow nature's laws. So how can I, okay? So Popper said, for science has to have testable questions. Thomas Kuhn, who was American, uh, talked about how a community of scientists share a paradigm describing accepted beliefs, values, and methods of science. So, and anomalies in those beliefs lead to revolutions. So people tend to, and we do this, there's fashion in science, there's fashion in everything. And there can be fashion in beliefs. Up until the 1950s, no one thought that tectonic plates, you know the idea that the Earth, the, the earth is moving, the continents move, and they used to all be together as Pangea? That was thought of as being batshit crazy. And then one guy's going, I oh, know, this is true. And then people did, and they were like, no, you're nuts. And then they went and did measurements and go, you're right. That's a revolution. Everybody thinks you're crazy. Anomaly, revolution. Everybody think, oh, come on, you can't study cognition and memory. That's nuts. There's no, that's an epiphenomenon. What you look at behavior. And then people say, yeah, but what about HM? Oh, you're right. Wow, cognition. Cognitive revolution. Now, it should be noted that, you know, or Galileo, right? Sun rolls around, everything rolls around the Earth. Galileo, no, Copernicus, no, not really. It's exactly not that. But people will often say when they have a crazy idea. You know, they laughed at Galileo. Yeah, but they also laughed at, like, I don't know, Robin Williams. I wouldn't have trusted him to come up with a theory of, I don't know, gravity. Just because somebody says you're crazy and laughs at you, does it mean that you're the revolutionary that's going to change science? Very rarely it does. Now and then you're Copernicus. Now and then you're Brenda Milner. Now and then you're whomever. But usually you're just some crank. <laughs> you know? So you've got to keep that in mind. And Paul Feraben, I'm sure I mispronounced that, very pragmatic attitude. Theory work? Good. Next. Also Austrian. Does it work? Yes, good. Move on. I don't know if he talked like that, but I only have two German guys in my repertoire of German guys. <laughs> there's angry German guy, and then there's German guys more like this, you know. So let's, let's, let's uh, get pictures of these dudes. There's Karl Popper. That's <coughs> Kuhn, and that's Fair Baram. Pensive? Perhaps wary. Angry guy who's going to mark your test. Right? <laughs> well, of course, university professors. They probably were an interesting bunch of people, but I don't. Uh, they don't look like it. Okay, so those are some things about science today that we think about, and they're reasonable, and you can recognize them. The thing is, a lot of this goes back, the idea of cause and effect, all these things go back, way back. And you've got to understand, when we start talking about the ancient Greeks, for example, they're doing this from first principles. This is coming out of their heads. There's no one else to reference. They're not going... They're not getting, using Google Scholar. There was like no Google in ancient Greece. There was, however, Aristotle. So Aristotle talked about the four kinds of causes, four causes of things. First is the efficient cause, the efficient agent. That's what it's made of, or what made it. Sorry. So what made it? Coffee cup. What made it? Um, 
Well, it's probably made into factories. It's a bad example. Let's pretend it was made by a potter. Okay? And not in, a, in China, <laughs> probably. What is it made of? The material cost. Okay, what's this made of? This is made of, um, again, let's pretend it's ceramic of some sort. I don't actually know what it's made of. Clay. Let's pretend it's clay. Formal cause, what's its arrangement or shape? It's a cup. The final cause is its function. What's it for? It's for holding liquids. And when you read Aristotle, which you can, um, well, you can read retellings of Aristotle. He usually uses the example of a table. Right? So the table, what's it for? It's for holding things. Who made it? A uh, carpenter. What's it made of? Wood. Things like that. This actually should send a little bit, and some of you guys are in my own paper class, it should sound a little bit like Tim Bergen's Four Wisely Fires. Where does it come from? It's evolutionary history. What's it used for? It's that kind of thing. It's amazing how something thousands of years ago was rediscovered by Nico Timbergen in the 1950s. Pretty cool. And then we can talk about teleology. And that's the notion there's an intrinsic teleology, that's the purpose uh, imminent in nature, and the extrinsic uh, teleology, the purpose that comes from the designer. Again, this is kind of like proximate and ultimate causation in biology. Okay. All right. So, Here are some things that people have said over the years, including ancient Greeks, but we can go today, that free will is, is necessary to adequately explain human experience. I believe you're all aware that I think that's a crock of shit, but you will hear a lot of people say this. A lot of people who don't have training as scientific psychologists will say, well, yeah, there's free will. Of course there's free will. There's also Free Willy, which is a fine film. It's a horrible, stupid movie. It just reminds me of my daughter being young and having to watch shitty movies on VHS. Oh, good, let's watch Fly Away Home again. God. Whoa, she liked that movie and now she studies migration. Mind blown. <laughs> That's cool. Wow. I'm really, that, that really kills me. That's, that's, that's really, really something. Like she's doing her PhD on migration in, in songbirds. Now, geese aren't songbirds, but that's pretty close, all I'm saying. Choosing to believe in, in determinism. Yeah, this, this is me called me setting up a strong man, by the way. Choosing to believe in determinism is inherently illogical. How could I choose to believe in something where there is no choice? Oh, well, that's very clever, Mr. Philosophy Word Game person. Determinism is horrible for morality. Can there be morality without free will? I've never understood this argument. Why not? Things are right, things are wrong. But I've heard people arguing against determinism and for free will who say that if you don't think there's free will, then there is no morality. You were then predestined to, I don't know, kill somebody or steal their wallet. That's a little less nasty. No one says anything's predestined. The idea of determinism is if you knew enough of the variables that affected the outcome, you could predict it perfectly. 
you're never going to know almost, or that's never going to happen. We're never going to get there, right? Minority report, be damned. We're not getting there. That's just not going to happen. I can't see that happening ever. Like, ever. Human brains, hell, just brains. Let's not even talk about human ones. Brains of anything that has a spinal column and a lot of things that don't are really complicated pieces of gear. Really complicated pieces of gear. So you're never going to be able to perfectly predict it. Oh, yeah, well, uh, what about quantum things? What about, like, uh, uh, you know, you know, what, like, when you, when you, you know, you know, Schroeder's cat? You know that experiment, the thought experiment whereby, well, first of all, back up a bit, you know that when things are really, 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 really small, like the size of an electron, right? If you know where an electron is, you can't know what it weighs. If you know what it weighs, you can't know where it is. Remember being taught in school, I wish I had more. Oh, maybe I do my bag. I think I do my bag. I mean, I could draw the thing again, and that's cool though. Remember being taught in high school, probably? That you had a proton in the middle, and you had electrons orbiting it? Remember that? It's not true. <laughs> It's a, it's, a, it's a model that predicts a lot of things in physics, but it's not actually true. Electrons actually, well, they are particles, aren't going around orbits like their little Earths going around the sun. Right? So this kills the discussion many of us have had while legally since October 17th last year smoking marijuana, there's no one here to illegally smoke marijuana ever. Because when you say, you know, we could just be on an electron going around a proton, and you thought that was deep because you're high. It's not deep, it's stupid. Um, the thing is, who here actually knows about this a little bit? Anybody know taking a little bit of advanced physics or chemistry? Well, yeah, please. Tell me about electrons. Like they're no, not. It wasn't weight. It was velocity. You can't know velocity mm -hmm. and position. So weights are open. Yeah. Basically, the notion here is that there are probability clouds of where the electron probably is. You can never know really where it is. Okay. So when things are really small, all the causality stuff that we know in the macro, the regular sized universe, doesn't work. Dude. And that's really that's true. I know it seems bizarre, but it's true. The universe is based on statistics. It's really weird. Like, it's all about probabilities. That's wild. So some people have then taken this and said, well, that's about that. That shows that free will must be true because you can't predict anything. And, you know, the Schrodinger's cat thing, then, is that there's one particle that's going to hit a detector, and if the particle hits the detector, it releases poison, and the cat inside the box dies. But until, and the way that the, the detector is activated is by opening the box. So before you open the box, the cat inside is both dead and alive. That's just a thought experiment. Obviously, that wouldn't work. But a lot of people, and this, this person here is the champion of that, Deepak Chopra. Deepak Chopra. Um, he loves this stuff. And it's horrible how dumb his ideas are and how much people just eat them up with a fork and a spoon. One of the things you can do, which is quite a bit of fun, is you can go to the Deepak Chopra quote generator. It doesn't actually... It's, these aren't actually quotes of his, but they, are, they sound like they're things he says. Now, because it's fun. Here we go. Random Deepak Chopra quote generator. Load up. And internet. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Each of us unfolds into subjective life. Like, that actually makes no sense. But some people think it's deep, and he's a millionaire. 
let's get another one. Your movement depends on spiritual photons. <laughs> that was great. That's, that's perfect. Um, one of the great things to do if you're on Twitter is to follow a guy named Professor Brian Cox, who's a, a physics professor from the UK. You may have seen him on the BBC presenting popular science stuff. And he trolls Chopra constantly. And it's wonderful. How do you spell his name? Uh, Chopra? Literally, just like it sounds. T-E-E-T-A-K-C-H-O-P-R-A. And Brian Cox, you should be able to figure out how to spell that. Um, Brian Cox also, by the way, was in a new wave band in the 80s in the UK and had a couple of hits, which is also kind of great. Then he went to graduate school, got a PhD in physics, and now he's at the University of Brighton. He's awesome. So these are all arguments about free will and determinism. The thing is, we have to have determinism in psychology and science generally, because if we didn't, we should stop, right? Because if we say x causes y, so if I tell you that x causes y, because I did an experiment and I varied x and y changed it. Right, kept everything else constant. Right, done. Everybody here would go, okay, yeah, x causes y. Replicated, that's true. Now, if you're a free will person, it's perfectly reasonable then logically to say, nope, it was Zed doing it. It's called free will. It's a free agent. You can do whatever it wants. How do you experimentally get rid of free will? So it's logically inconsistent, incompatible with scientific thinking to believe in free will. You can do it on your own time, you just can't do it when you're doing science. I mean, if you ask anybody in our department, is there free will, we'd probably go, no. Does it feel like you have free will? Uh -huh. That's all that really matters. It feels that way. Now, here's the other argument, the counter-arguments. Of course, deterministic accounts become more effective throughout history. The more we know, the better we are able to predict things. Right? Also, the morality thing, who cares? This is my, my response to, first of all, I think there is morality without free will. But secondly, so? That's got nothing to do with science. I don't care. I care that people are moral. I want people to be moral, and I think most people are more or less. But that matters. And determinism is what allows us to make causal explanations. It allows the X causes Y. The belief that there is determinism does that. So it's a very important thing for us. Okay. Now, mind-body, which people think is a problem. People think that if we have a mind that feels separate from our body, which it does, by the way. Our minds all feel... I mean, I don't think the mind and the body are separate. I'm certain they aren't, frankly. However, my mind feels way different than my hand does. Like, you know, there's something special about it. Sure, I, I would buy that. However, that doesn't mean that it is necessarily or is at all separate from my body. It comes from my brain. I know that. So what's the relationship between the physical body and the mind? And of course, Descartes was being on this. His the idea of dualism versus monism. And this is going to be kind of a running theme, you'll find, is that there's the idea of monism, which is the body and the mind are the same, and dualism, which is separate. A lot of psychologists give a lot of credit to Descartes for giving us permission to study the mind on its own. Okay? Um, I give Descartes credit for, first of all, really looking like he's from France. That's the first thing. Like, just look at that picture. That's a guy from France. I don't know. He just looks like that to me. But secondly, I give him credit for confusing people into thinking that your mind and your body are separate things. Um, I guess in the early days it makes some sense, so I can see that. It's like, well, we can just study the mind on its own. But you can study the heart on its own without worrying a lot about the lungs. You don't say the heart and the lung are not part of the same deal. So, I don't know. 
so the question you can ask is neuroscience and all that's great, but can it explain physical, uh, sorry, psychological phenomena? This is one of those things, too, that with the sort of neuroscience revolution that's happened in the last, geez, 15 years, maybe even 10. Um, people want to do every experiment and then do it in an MRI. Well, put them in an MRI. Let's put them in an MRI. Fundamental attribution error, great. Put them in an MRI. See what happens there. I don't know how much that helps with these macro kind of problems. I think eventually it does. I don't know that we know enough yet about how neural networks work to be able to do that. And I'm pretty bullish on neuroscience. Um, so a lot of people will come, will say like, you know, um, they're very skeptical of sort of neuro explanations, or that they're done too early. One of the things you'll see trotted out soon, because we're going to have an election in this country in the next six weeks, right? And then, isn't it great living in Canada where there's just a couple of election ads on right now? And we're only six weeks out, and in the States, they already have ads, and it's like, I don't know, what is their, their election at the end of November of 2020? And we're just like, yeah, we're going to have an election. Right now, even the party that I'll pro almost certainly vote for, I mute those, those ads when they come on. It's like, I don't want to think about it right now. Then there's one party where I, I scream, get off my effing television, and I turn off the TV, and I run away. <laughs> But it's great. That's nice. But this will be trotted out shortly. Liberals and conservatives have different kinds of brains. How does that help me? How does it help me understand anything about why people have certain liberals? Of course everyone has different patterns of activations in their brains. That's because we're all different people. And it sort of gives you the idea, oh, that, that's, a, that's a pathology. No, it's a different kind of thinking is all. Please stop. So not everything should be neuroscience. So that kind of neuroscience pisses me off. Properly done behavioral and cognitive neuroscience is great. I think you'll see more dualists among, not dualists like this, but do you? Though I think you probably had a sword fight. Look at him. He could sword fight, right? Descartes could... Oh, and, uh, you talk about Cardinal Richelieu. I don't even know if that's the same time period. No, it isn't. But hanging out with D'Artagnan. <laughs> let's, let's pretend he was a, the fifth musketeer. Descartes, the fifth musketeer. If I put titles on the podcast of lectures, that would be the title right there. Descartes was the fifth musketeer. So, but duelist in this sense, I think you'll see more of those more in the sort of social science areas of psychology. But you don't see very many. <laughs> like, hardly any, okay? All right. Now, the Greeks. Let's head back. We've got some introductory stuff out of the way. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. They made good statues, right? That's Socrates. You know, the amazing thing is they could make statues, the Greeks and the Romans, and they were perfect. They couldn't paint with a shit. <laughs> no, they couldn't. They, they couldn't do perspective. They just couldn't. Have you ever looked at old paintings? They all look like everybody's two-dimensional. They look like a stupid child maker. Not even a smart child. <laughs> They're cool, because like you look at it and go, a guy painted this 2,500 years ago, that's pretty neat. The Egyptians could make, so going back before the ancient Greeks, the ancient Egyptians could make beautiful statues, but their paintings all had people like this. Right? But they had to show both eyes, so they're like looking that way, but that way at the same time. They couldn't figure out perspective at all. It's amazing. And when you go to like a museum and you look at some of these old things and you think, that's neat. I want to touch it. I shouldn't, so I won't. And then you see stuff into the medieval times, into the Middle Ages, you go, they still can't do perspective. And then suddenly around like 1400, you go, whoa, that looks like reality. 
And they were trying to depict reality. That's the thing. It wasn't like it was meant to be figurative art. So. Anyway, that's what Socrates. Pretty cool. Like the, we know what he looked like. Long hair, pretty beardy. He didn't like relativism. That's the idea that humans are the standard, and everything else in nature should be judged against humans. That's neat, isn't it? Isn't that rare? Like to, you would think that you would think because you would think you would think humans are, are magic or something. That's cool. So he liked reason more than anything. So he thought through reason, that's rationalism, right? We could come to the truth. So that's where rationalism in the Western tradition at least comes from. Nice. And he said knowledge is virtue. Knowing things, or as I've often said, knowing things is cool. I think there are two things in the world that have intrinsic value. Knowing things and love. Nothing else. Everything else flows in. That's me, by the way, to break that down. But I, I honestly believe there are two things that have intrinsic value. Everything else comes from that. And that's knowing stuff and love. So knowledge is virtue, according to Socrates. And ignorance is evil. Ignorance is evil. That's a very modern view of the world, really, isn't it? So ignorance makes you evil. So notice he's not saying that there, the evil is a thing. He said evil comes from something. Evil comes from ignorance. Virtue comes from knowledge. Things aren't intrinsically evil or good, or people aren't. But knowing things is, and not knowing them is evil, is Peter Griffin. So he would consider Peter Griffin pretty evil, though I think he might find him funny. I like to think, after they got over the amazement of, you know, moving pictures, they'd find things like that funny, those guys back then. Of course, they couldn't speak English. They wouldn't know what was going on. They'd probably ask questions like, why every three or four episodes does he fight a chicken? Explain that to me. That you have to bring Seth MacFarlane into your time machine. It gets all very complicated. Plato. Plato, Plato looks... Um, he's got the classic bowl cut. His mom just put the bowl on his head and cut his hair. It's good luck. He was a student of Socrates. And eventually he sort of sets up his own shop. This is how education works in ancient Greece. There's a lot of things we would recognize today in ancient Greece. We would recognize... Their form of democracy, we would recognize it. It's not the same as ours. You know what? We were just talking about elections. They didn't have elections. You know what they had? Random lottery. You know they elected their councils that governed Athens? A lottery. Every citizen had their, well, they didn't put their name put into a thing. You would go and you would, you wouldn't look, and you would pull a ball out of a, like a stone, a pebble, out of a basket. And if you got a certain color, oh, you're an MP now. I kind of actually like that. There'd be no election campaigns, no ads. It would just be this. Oh, you're the, you're the, you're the MP now. I doubt it would work very well today. There'd be people trying to game it, too. So we recognize that, the idea of freedom of speech, the idea of freedom of assembly, the idea of freedom of religion to a point. The idea of being able to criticize the government to a point. Okay, the slavery wouldn't be much of a Wait, ho, 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 hold on there, Plato. But we would recognize it, and we would also recognize people getting an education. Right? And the way you got an education, if you were a citizen, was you went and you hung out in the Agora, which is the, um, the marketplace, and there'd be these philosophers. And they'd sit there, and they'd ask you questions, and you'd answer them. It's kind of like having a lecture. So if this was ancient Greece, we would all be dressed differently, obviously, and we'd be speaking ancient Greek. So that changes everything. But we would be doing the ancient Greek, and we'd all be hanging out, and you'd come in, and you'd show up, and you'd pay me a little few drachmas. I'm assuming they're still using drachmas back then. I don't know. You, or you give me something. And then that means you can sit around and hang out, and we can discuss things. 
I'm the philosopher, you're my students. That's how Plato learned from Socrates. So you'd hang out in the, in the town square, and we'd be having debates about stuff. And I'd be telling you how the world worked. It's not, uh, it's, it's Plato's blame. Um, so that's how education works. So it's kind of like how university works. We would recognize ourselves in ancient Greece. There's no doubt about that. There'd be things we'd go, oh, oh, like I said, the slavery, we'd go, oh, no, 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 that's weird, don't do that. But other stuff we'd recognize. We'd recognize it. So Plato argued, so he was a student of Socrates, and then he goes on, he sets up his own shop, basically. When I say shop, again, it's his corner of a marketplace in Athens. So it's kind of like he did his PhD with Socrates, but they didn't have PhDs back then. So he argued that, that senses provide only an illusion, that reason provides true knowledge. You can sort of see the influence of his academic father there. Right? So your senses lie to you. And he used the idea of illusions, because they know about illusion. And he said, look, I can show you your senses lie to you. So he had this idea of the theory of forms. So he said that we get meaning from forms that are timeless. You ever heard of a platonic state of something? Right. A platonic relationship? The ultimate kind of relationship between two people was being friends, according to Plato. Plato said that in heaven, there is a perfect version of everything. So there is the most tabley table of all tables is in heaven. And we all know that. And then as the table we see in front of us changes imperceptibly, very small amounts, that's how we know that time is passing. That's very clever. I mean, it's stupid. But it's also, no one's talking about me in 3,000 years. And I'll still be, if we're all around still, I'll still be talking about Plato. Okay, so that's pretty cool. And again, these are, you see where our modern ideas come from. He said we had a tripartite mind. Appetitive, the appetitive part, which is our appetites. The affective part, that's our emotions. And the rational soul. Does that sound vaguely familiar to anyone? What's that sound like? Come on, guys. Please. What's it sound like? Yes, exactly. That's what this is. I'm not saying Freud stole from Plato, but I don't like Freud, so let's say he stole from Plato. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's very much Freudian, like Freud. So Freud is Platonic. Plato is a Freudian, because one was well before the other. He talked about pain versus pleasure. That that's when we try to minimize pain and maximize pleasure. Sort of a utilitarian approach. That's good. I like that. I think we do that. That's what we're just learning, right? Sensory function and perception are also things he talked about. How, how we get stuff in our system, and then how we perceive it, how we organize it. Bottom-up and top-down processing. The, the same stuff you talk about today in sensation perception. Plato talked about it. And the cool thing here is you can go back, you actually can read these things. In a graduate uh, course I took on cognition, we read um, Plato's ideas about perception. And he was trying to figure out how, how vision worked, which is a good question, right? Because you don't know how light works. So you don't, like we know now, it's particles of light, photons bouncing off the table, hitting my retina. We know that. But you don't know stuff like that way, way long ago. So you know what Plato figured? He figured that thin sheets, very thin sheets of each object were floating towards your eye and hitting them. And that's, you know, it's your eye. You know, your, you know, your eye you know. Hey, look, other people thought there were rays coming out of your eyes that you couldn't see that were seeing. Gravity touching. So this is probably closer to reality. Thin sheets, photons. <laughs> That's cool, right? And again, we can laugh at that today. It's stupid. It's obviously clearly ridiculous. However, 
if you had no background at all in anything, and you had to do it from first principles, that's not a bad notion, is it? It's wrong, but it's not a bad idea. He, he said that mental illness might be irrational drives, just one among the bits of the soul, or just ignorance. Remember, again, his father, his academic father, said that evil makes evil uh, comes from ignorance. So he's got that in there. He's also got the idea, and it's, this is Freud came up with Kim said the same thing, right? That in ego and super ego beings are out of balance, and it gives you mental disorders. And for by the way, he talked about mental illness. He didn't say, like people said in like you know the 1700s, the 1600s. Uh, clearly, there's Satan in there somewhere. Burn him. That'll do it. Light him on fire. Again, there are things about ancient Greece that we would go, ew. But a lot of things we would be able to say, yeah, okay, cool. You talk about different kinds of love in a hierarchy going from um, erotic love, which is the lowest form of love. Right? Because it's all icky and sticky and gross. Right? It's all animal and basic. Up to the love of knowledge, which is the ultimate kind of love. I kind of like that, but I'm not going to say anymore. <laughs> now we get to Aristotle. Aristotle looks like he had the beard because he had an underbite. Right? I think that's why he's doing the beard. It's like, yeah, well, I got a real bad underbite and I got a beard. Again, the same bad hair. They all had the bad hair back then. Or maybe the, the, maybe the guys who made statues back then could only make bad hair. That's a possibility. Seems unlikely. <laughs> I don't think this is hundreds of years between those people. So he was Plato's student, so he had like 100 years from him to Socrates. He didn't think the idea of form was uh, something that mattered. This idea, we talked about that. Um, the formal cause. It's like, how can that be independent of experience? How can it be independent of what it's made of? So he's got more, more of a sort of, uh, today we'd say a gestalt way of looking at things, a holistic way of looking at things. He said the soul does sensation, uh, appendant stuff, like intuitive stuff, and movement and reason. Now, you've, one of the things you have to realize is when you read these translations from the ancient Greek, and I don't, I didn't learn the ancient Greek. When they say soul, a lot of the times they mean mind. Okay? So when you, if you read, and you can read original these translations of, of, of a lot of these philosophers, when they use the word soul, a lot of the times they actually mean mind. So if you're ever doing that for your paper, papers or whatever you do in this class or, or anything, frankly, when you read this stuff, a lot of times they're saying soul, they don't mean your immortal soul. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about your mind. Okay? It's the same thing with Descartes. Descartes talked about how the soul was in the pineal gland. Right? Yeah, he... Sometimes, he was a pretty devout Catholic, sometimes he meant your immortal soul, but other times he clearly meant your mind, your cognitive abilities. And you've got to get it from context around it. In this case, when he talks about the soul doing these things, he means your mind. Right? That's what he means here. He talked about the difference between memory and recollection. Which is interesting, because he says memory is something you do on purpose, and you... And it's like, he would say, a statue or a painting. Though he probably wouldn't say painting because as noted, Greeks couldn't paint. Ancient people just couldn't paint figurative things. Um, like a picture, right? Today we'd say a video. Recollection happens not on purpose. And it's constructive. Now, we all know today that memory generally is constructive, right? It's reconstructive. But it's neat that he thought about this. Also, though, when we think about memory today, 
when he talks about memory versus recollection, I see in this, I see explicit versus implicit memory. I definitely see that. Stuff that you do on purpose, stuff that just happens. Knowing what you had for breakfast, knowing what breakfast is. Okay. So those kind of insights from people doing it for first principles really impressed the hell out of me. And he had an associationist account of learning. So he said, if two things occur together, they will be, one will put you in mind of the other. Does that sound vaguely like classical and opera conditioning? Well, actually, it should sound exactly like it, because that's what it is. It's association, associative learning, which is mind-boggling. Right? It really is amazing that these, again, it makes sense to us, but we can't. We have thousands of years of, of academic tradition and, and, and all that behind us. He didn't. So that's pretty smart. Like, you got to really think to yourself, that's a smart person, or was, because he's long dead. And he said one of the things that humans can do that other, other things other animals can't do is we can imagine things. We can imagine things that aren't there. We can imagine things that are impossible. And if you just read some, um, read some ancient Greek plays, right? There are stories of encounters with gods. No one's actually had an encounter with any of those gods. I'm sorry if I'm offending anyone here who believes in ancient Greek gods. But... No one's had those encounters, but people could imagine them. And you could watch them in a play and go, yeah, that's exactly how I figured it would have been. Like, if I said to you right now, imagine sky is purple. You just, oh, got it, done. That's easy. Imagine you could fly. Yeah, done. Huh. And then there's reality. We're sitting in a classroom in Sault Ste. Marie. <laughs> And he was impressed that humans could do this. And he said that other animals couldn't. And he knew that we were special, but he also knew that we were we were animals. It'd be one of those things you probably couldn't pin him down on it. Because it would be really weird and probably heretical to say humans were animals back then. But he would be probably go, yeah, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. We're still not animals. Right? Which is usually the argument, but if you ever have the argument with somebody who thinks humans aren't animals, and then they, they, you say, well, we do this, 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 and this, like, yeah, but uh, still. <laughs> they really have nothing, but they kind of go, yeah, you're right, yeah, you're right. I think he would do this. His friends call him Ari, I'm just guessing. <laughs> hey, Ari, yo! That was his street name. DJ Ari Fresh, yo. So... <laughs> He talked about what he called the golden mean, and that's the threshold, so the importance of pleasure and pain, having the right amount of pleasure and just a little, enough pain to stop you from doing something stupid. You can't just go with pleasure because you're going to end up dead. Right? So again, this is all about achieving good. This is something that all of those three great Greek philosophers were talking about. And there, so four factors affect human ability to achieve good. One is individual differences. So that's something we can think about today, which is everybody's different. We have different abilities, right? Okay. I was mentioning yesterday, I think in animal behavior, how no matter how much you train, you're never going to run as fast as Usain Bolt. It's just not going to happen. There's no one in this room that can do that. I would say, no matter how much anybody here trains, probably can't be, right? You can't be wrestling, can't be wrestling, wrestling. Probably not going to happen. <laughs> Training you a lot, we'll get you a coach, give you five years, he'll still kick your ass. Nationally ranked wrestler, none of you are. Not going to happen. Not saying you're saying bolt, but probably the difference is comparable. 
So there's individual differences. There's habit. So you just learn things. Right? This is what you know. Your social support, really important. This is interesting, too, because he talked a lot about this, about society, because the Greeks were into the idea of there being a social, of there being social cohesion. They really liked social cohesion. They were big fans of social cohesion. The idea that everybody should, you know, it's a democracy. People can do whatever they want to a point. Like, they like, that was their, you know? Did I get that? Sure. However, there is freedom of choice, so you can do what you want. There's that free will thing. So those things together affect our ability to achieve good. Okay. So that's some original, that's some of this philosophy stuff. You might ask yourself, who cares? Why should I care about this? Well, I think it gives you the idea, first of all, that ideas that we have today in psychology have a history. I mean, they clearly do, or we didn't have a course called History of Psychology. But it's also the case that we don't tend to think of the history of ideas very often. We tend to think of history as being political things, social things. Right? I tend to think of history basically being a way for uh, just a way for me to somehow think about airplanes in World War II, because I'm very strange. I've been obsessed with the Second World War since I was about ten. It's a thing, and we tend to think of history being like that. We tend to think of history being about great people, and we talk about some great people today. Um, we don't tend to think of ideas as much. So the ideas, and especially the ideas of science, because we tend to think of it being separate, right? We tend to think of has anybody here taken an actual history course in university? Okay, there's like three of us. Okay, so there's not a lot of us in here that have done that. And that's fine. You're lost. You find out when you take history in university that that's not really what history is. It's not just people sitting down memorizing dates. It's not just all about great people. It's a lot of it's about ideas. And ideas have a history. So I think it's important for that. That's one of the reasons it's important. Um... And I think it gives us a lot of perspective that many of these ideas are still talked about today. I, I, I was trying today, and I don't think they were reaches when I was saying that, you know, that's like Freud. That's like implicit and explicit memory. So I think that matters as well, that we realize that the ideas we have, the problems we are interested in in psychology are things that people have been thinking about Literally for thousands of years. One of the things that happens when you eventually, if you ever read William James' Principles of Psychology, is you read it and go, yeah, he's right, yeah, he's right, yeah, he's right. They were thinking about that already in 1890? Well, they were thinking about that in 1890 BC. E. Amazing, right? Questions about this before we talk a bit about the article? I just thought that. All right.
thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures at Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find, uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So, uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're, they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next time.